0: U.S. only. Learn more at public.com/disclosures/high-yield-account.
1: The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry, and Media City Qatar, and premier sponsor QNB.
2: This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The 500 wealthiest people in the world. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Which way do we go? Markets fight against the surging virus as states delay their return to normal. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week, I'm David Weston. This week, we said goodbye to an historic 2020, one that saw a pandemic sweep the world, that brought on a global recession, putting over 20 million Americans out of work. But for all that, we also had an S&P having its best quarter in 22 years and surging consumer confidence, And then at the end of the week, we found out that we created 4.8 million new jobs last month. Another pleasant surprise. So what might the second half of an already harrowing year hold for investors? And can we really know where we're headed until we put that virus behind us by developing a vaccine? We begin with the jobs numbers and whether we can really read much into them given the uncertainty about the virus. That's a question we asked of former Labor Secretary Robert Reich.
3: Uh, well, the trend is certainly encouraging, at least relative to May and also April. Uh, but we are still 15 million jobs. And when, let me repeat that, David, because sometimes you know the, the numbers just are overwhelming. 15 million jobs below what we were in February. Uh, so this little increase in jobs, that's good. Uh, it's better than not having it. But I also want to bring to your attention and to viewers' attention and listeners' attention, that uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics survey was done before the current spike, the new spike in viruses uh, in California and Texas and Arizona and many other places. Uh, And the real problem here is that the coronavirus is calling the shots, uh, and it has to call the shots. People are not going to go into malls uh, and take airplanes and do a lot of other things until they feel safe. And unfortunately, with this new spike, we are heading in exactly the wrong direction. Uh, we had 52,000 new cases. We have not had that many new cases in the United States. The record before had been 50,000 new cases. So if you haven't got 52,000 new cases in one day, uh, which is more? Let me just add than Europe put together. Uh, well, you know you're, you're you're heading in the wrong direction. Um, not only in terms of the economy, but in terms of public health, and public confidence, uh, and all of the basic ingredients in what a good life should be.
2: And if you look at these job numbers, which, as you say, the trend is a nice trend, two months now exceeding expectations, a lot of the gains come in some of those areas that really are most susceptible to the reopening or the reversal of the reopening. So what is the smartest thing to do in terms of job creation in dealing with this pandemic? Uh,
3: well, if you are a, uh, a, a an employee and you are furloughed, uh, and you are getting paid and you are furloughed, you're in a pretty good position. If you are an employee and you can work remotely and you're getting paid to work remotely, you're you're fine. My concern is that you've got these two other very, very big groups of Americans. Uh, one who are essential workers, so-called essential workers, they are working in warehouses and factories and in meatpacking uh, and in hospitals. A lot of these people are susceptible and are getting the virus in very large numbers, in hotspots, and they are infecting other people. We are not doing what we need to do as a nation, not only in terms of contact Uh, testing and tracing, uh, but also in terms of providing these people with adequate protection. Uh, And OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, of which I used to supervise when I was Secretary of Labor, uh, they are not doing their job. They ought to be establishing national standards right now for maintaining distance at work for masks, uh, for sanitizers, uh, for all sorts of other ways of preventing these essential workers from getting sick. You've got the, the second group of workers we've been talking about, and that is people who are unemployed but also underemployed. Uh, we have across the country millions of people About four million people who are getting paid less than they were paid before because employers know that unemployment is very high and they can squeeze their workers. We've got about six million people who are working fewer hours than they were working before, even though they are still employed. We've got many, many millions of Americans who are working part time, who'd rather be working full time. Uh, They can't
2: find jobs. This virus looks like it's going to be with us for some time to come. Uh, Do we need to start thinking about how to protect those people over the longer term? I mean, PPE is fine. Giving them masks is fine. But ultimately, do we need to think about retooling them so that they're not as exposed?
3: Well, we need the the first and most important thing, David, is to make sure that they survive and their families survive. They have a roof over their heads and they're not going hungry. Uh, And the direction we're going in right now, with the virus increasing again and all of these benefits running out, my first worry and our first worry should be that these people and their families are going to be imperiled uh, in Uh, the end of July, in August, in September. Uh, The next big question is what are they going to do if, as we expect, the virus continues uh, through the fall? Uh, And I think that we do have to enable people to work remotely. Uh, More people are going to have to work remotely. Employers are going to have to figure out how to enable people to work remotely. Uh, And if they cannot work remotely, we've got to get national standards with regard to safety and health in the workplace. Uh, And as I said before, uh, we've got to have those be national standards. We can't have one city or one state with different safety standards than another state or city.
2: That was Robert Reich of the University of California at Berkeley. Next on Wall Street Week, retired General Stanley McChrystal on leadership in a time of crisis such as we face now. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg.
3: This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week
2: with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Afghanistan is back in the news on reports that perhaps Russia offered some bounties for the killing of U.S. soldiers over there in Afghanistan, raising questions about what the United States is doing in Afghanistan, our relations with Russia, and more broadly, about leadership in this country, all subjects of which General Stanley McChrystal knows a very great deal, having served as the commander of National Security Forces Afghanistan, now as a founder and CEO of McChrystal Group. And he also is the author of a book on leadership, which is called Leaders, Myth and Reality. What does it tell us about where we are in Afghanistan? We're still over there. It seems like we can't quite get out. Why is Afghanistan strategically important for the United States?
4: Well, that's a great question, because... You could argue that it's over in the middle of nowhere. It's a landlocked country that doesn't have a tremendous number of resources that we are required to have. Traditionally, it was part of the great game. And so Britain and Russia fought over it as a buffer zone to protect British India. For us, I think it's more of a global idea. It's the idea that we went there in 2001 on our decision after the the 9-11 attacks. We basically overthrew the government, the Taliban government, and then we felt we had a moral requirement to stay there to help them put together a new government and also a practical requirement to help get some stability in the world now we can argue that it's far enough away that it just doesn't matter i i am not uh in that camp but but it's hard to stand and say that it is right at a key place in the world that we have to have so i won't i won't
2: try to make that argument Is it strategically vital to Russia, on the other hand? I mean, they went back in in there over in the 80s, and they got their nose bloodied, I think it's fair to say. At the same time, they can't quite let it go either. Or is this more a matter of trying to really get at the United States through a surrogate? I really think it's more the latter. I think Russia would like to tweak our noses a little bit
4: where they can. They've done that in the past. Remember in the 1980s, of course, that was during the Cold War, but we funded the Mujahideen. We gave them stingers, in fact, which was one of the reasons the Soviet uh, attempt to remain in Afghanistan failed. So there's a history there, and I'm sure that there's a tremendous number of people in Russia that would like to do the same
2: to us. And General Christo, what about the notion of putting bounties on, on foreign soldiers' heads? Is that outside the rules of war? Is that different from simply arming people who will use the weapons to kill our soldiers?
4: Well, I think it's a difference without a distinction. I think that it's not a good thing, particularly if we are you know, going to have good relations with Russia, theoretically. But at the same time, it's the kind of thing that has been done historically for a long time. So I don't think we should be outraged by the act. What we should do is put that into our, calcula- our calculations of our relationship with Russia. And an ally or someone you do business with doesn't do that to you. And so I think that should color how we react
2: to uh, the entire Russian Federation. And if this proves out to be uh, plausible intelligence, supportable intelligence, is there an impetus to have to do something to react? Because otherwise you're sending a message to uh, Russia, which, as you say, is not an ally at this point, that we are weak. I think we've got to show that that's not the kind of thing that we will tolerate, particularly
4: quietly. I mean, you can start by just making public pronouncements if you have good enough intelligence to do that. You can do some things on the ground that push back in other places in the world as well. This is a a chess game for years between great nations. So I think there are things we can do. We've got to signal that we are firm. We don't have to signal that we are vengeful, but we have to we have to signal that we cannot
2: be trifled with. General Krishna, to broaden this out, to talk about leadership more broadly, I mean, you have done it, you have led, you have written about it, you've studied it. Tell us about the leadership we need right now. We have a rather unusual circumstance with perhaps three different crises facing the country at the same time, a pandemic, an economic crisis that followed on the pandemic, and also civil strife, really, over the continued systemic racism. What sort of leadership do we need right now? And maybe more important, what kind of followers do we need? Because often we learn as much about us in crisis as we do about our leaders. After 9-11, I think we learned some things about the United States of America that we're encouraging. I think that's right.
4: Uh, David, I think what we need, I'll start with followers, is we need to be the citizens that we believe citizens should be, how we treat fellow Americans, how we treat fellow people in the world. We need to be the followers we would like to have if we were in a leadership position. We need to understand that sometimes things are hard and they're hard for everybody. And we've got to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and move forward. I think we have a tendency to be selfish sometimes. I think we have a tendency to be myopic. And that is beneath the American character. I think we are better than that. I know we are better than that, and we can do it. What kind of leadership do we need to do that? We don't need a particularly anointed person as leader. The woman or man that leads the United States doesn't have to be brilliant, doesn't have to have all the answers. They have to have two things. They have to have character, and I call that the the amalgamation of values, integrity, steadiness, and they have to have judgment. They have to be able to surround themselves with people better informed and smarter than they are that can influence them toward the right outcome. No one person's going to walk in with all the answers or solutions. It's just not realistic. And when you study history, it's never been the case, although we sometimes want to cast it in that light. So I think we need to be thinking about a leader who pulls a team together, team around them to govern, and then a team of the United States. You know, as bad as COVID-19, it's an extraordinary opportunity. It's an external threat facing every country in the world essentially the same way. It ought to be the most unifying pressure we've ever gotten because it's a them that we don't have to hate. We can use it to unify ourselves. We can use it to galvanize people into action. The things like the economic challenges that it creates are also things that we should roll up our sleeves and say, these are hard, but we will work our way through them. So I actually think it ought to be an opportunity for us to show us who we are to our
2: shelves, so ourselves, who we are, and for leaders to stand up and ask us to do that. So, General McChrystal, you refer to history, and I think there's a tendency to look back over American history and say, we've had some pretty bad crises before, but there has been some outstanding leader that stepped up. FDR during World War II, Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War, the founding fathers, you could name them, uh, back during the Revolution. Uh, As we approach our nation's birthday here, is that putting too much pressure on individuals at this point? Do we need an Abraham Lincoln, an FDR, uh, uh, George Washington right now, to pull us through this?
4: Well, if you looked at Abraham Lincoln's career before his election in 1860, it was not that impressive, one-term congressman. If you look at Franklin Roosevelt, although governor of New York, in many ways he wasn't taken seriously by many people in the Democratic Party or the world. And the point I'm making is often the circumstances in which they are put make the person. We would never remember Abraham Lincoln if it had not been for the Civil War. But the reality is they rose to the occasion, Look at Abraham Lincoln, surrounded himself with the famous team of rivals. He, he had to, to work his way through a tremendous number of mistakes in the first three years of the Civil War before he finally gets comfortable in the job and can actually carry it forward.
2: But all the time, he has values, he has character. That was General Stanley McChrystal of the McChrystal Group. Coming up, the epicenter of the pandemic has shifted to Houston. And we talk with the man running the hospital center on the front lines, Dr. Mark Boom of Texas Methodist. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg.
0: Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this, it's a higher rate than Robinhood. This is Bloomberg
3: Wall Street Week with David Weston. From Bloomberg Radio. Well,
0: Harris County,
2: Texas, that's the home of Houston, announced that it was gonna to go to the highest level of alert as COVID nineteen cases continued to rise and ICU beds came into short supply. Welcome now, Dr. Mark Boom. He's president and CEO of Houston Methodist. It's a hospital system with more than twenty three hundred beds and twenty four thousand employees. So Doctor Boom, thank you so much for being with us. Give us an update on where things are because we heard reports maybe you were you were out of ICU beds. You were full up, but now I hear maybe that's not right.
5: Yeah, that's right. It things let me let me start by saying in In Houston, the virus is uh, really spreading very rapidly, and we're highly concerned with that. So I want want everything I say coming next to, to be clear with that, that unless we do something as the citizens of Houston, our leadership and others to stem this spread... We are very concerned about the trends we are seeing. Um, ICU beds are, are you know, really one of the core things that we measure when we look at how are we able to respond to this. And last week, uh, there were reports that we were out of ICU beds, um, but they really came a little more from some, uh, I think, misunderstanding of, of complex data, data that uh, hospital executives, physicians, and others struggle with ourselves sometimes. Um, Normally we run about ninety, ninety-five percent occupancy and we've been running about ninety to ninety-five percent occupancy in our ICUs. But the difference now is of course about one in four of those patients have COVID versus, you know, a year ago where none of them would have had COVID. So we've already been making many adjustments to handle that. We have a lot of ability to to upregulate and, and have additional ICU beds, but of course that's not an unlimited supply. And so we are working very hard with that, working very hard to manage that. But unless we bend this curve and unless we have people across Houston, really every single one of them locking arms and saying, I got you and we got you covered and wearing their mask and uh, social distancing and all the other things they need to do, frankly, staying home at this point, unless you need to be uh, out of the home, um, we're worried that we're seeing very rapid acceleration of the spread right now based on the testing data that we see.
2: Give us a sense of the demographics, as it were, of the sorts of patients you're seeing coming in, and particularly in ICU, having COVID-19. Is it similar to what we saw in New York, that is to say, it tends to be the elderly and people with underlying conditions, or is it changing?
5: Yeah, that's correct. It, it is changing, and that's you know that that certainly um, uh, is a cushion a little bit to some of the dynamics, but but it's not going to solve them. Uh, you know, so in that first wave, we would see about sixty percent of people getting admitted, they're getting tested positive rather. Uh, had were, we're over fifty now, we're seeing uh, that completely flip. So it's sixty percent under fifty. Um, back in that first wave, maybe one in five of our patients who were in ICU were younger than fifty. Now that's rapidly approaching one in three. So we're seeing a lot of very young people who do need ICU care. There's this misperception that you know young people don't get sick. The average young person doesn't get sick. But if you have enough young people um, who are uh, getting the virus, some of them get extraordinarily sick. Um, we've had patients on ECMO, we've had young mother who was on ECMO for over two weeks to save her life. We did, thankfully, um, able to go home to her baby after more than a month after she delivered. Um, these are tough, tough situations. And so we have to have everybody, and right now, frankly, with the data we're seeing, especially the younger population, recognizing that there is no way to get this un- under control unless everybody does their part.
2: Is the treatment also evolving? We don't have a vaccine yet. We don't know when we'll get one. There's a lot of talk about treatments. For example, remdesivir, we heard from Gilead, it's going to be pretty expensive to administer this stuff. How are you treating these people who really have severe cases?
5: Yeah, that's a great question. And, and, you know, also, um, I think a cause for some cautious optimism, at least once somebody gets hospitalized, is that the outcomes have really improved a great deal. Um, So mortality has gone down significantly, and it doesn't um, completely compute just with the age shift. That's a major factor. Uh, but we have learned so much. Well, we've been caring pa- for patients with COVID for you know, over 100 days now. Um, our clinicians are smart. They've learned a lot. We were the first hospital in the country to use co- convalescent, convalescent serum. Uh, and we've been very active in the remdesivir trials. And in both cases, we think those have been quite helpful. Um, but there's a lot of other things that are uh, more nuts and bolts, honestly. Proning, which means putting somebody on their stomach. It was a technique that had been used in the past for really sick people, on a ventilator, in an ICU. Now it's recognized really for patients who are in an acute care bed, so they're not so sick to be in ICU. Um, And it's actually preventing people from deteriorating. So what we're seeing is, uh, even though our volumes compared to the last peak are well more than double, um, our ICU utilization is up from that time, but not nearly as much. And I think we're keeping people out of ICU. The length of stay we're seeing is about a day and a half shorter for people who, who do stay here. So those are some good news but the challenge is that in the community this virus is spreading rapidly and unless our community works together to get that spread under control we are very concerned that many thousands of people could get infected people will die and the economy really will take a real beating again as either through you know incremental government orders or frankly just simply because the virus is uh, you know effectively disrupting organizations and companies and businesses ability to to function um, that we will see significant negative economic impact in
2: addition. Dr. Mark Boom of Houston Methodist. Coming up, special contributor Larry Summers takes us through the history we've made in the first six months of 2020. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg.
3: This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio.
2: Historic is a word that's used too freely. But the first half of 2020 will most certainly go down in the history books. To give us some perspective, we asked special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard for his take on what that history will look like.
6: Look, uh, David, the first thing to say is that the first six months of 2020 are likely to be in the history books. Most six-month periods don't get in the history books. Who knows what some history book will say about the first half of 2014 or the second half of 2007 they will talk about the second half of 1941 they will talk about the second half of 2001 they will talk about the second half of 1963 when Kennedy was assassinated and I think they'll talk about this period they'll talk about this period because covid will be a very big story they may talk about it because of the, transformational uh, events in uh, American politics. They may talk about it because of what's happening in China, but I think there's a good chance that this last six months will be uh, in the history books, not to mention the financial history books, given that you saw central banks do things that central banks had never before done in history, You saw them do it in almost every major,
2: uh, country. The thing that puts us in history books often is extreme adversity. You have an assassination of a president. You have the beginning of a war. You have a terrorist attack. Certainly we have that here with the pandemic followed by the economic crisis. But the real question then becomes, how do we respond to that extreme adversity? What do you think the history books will say about how we've responded? There's what I fear and there's what I hope. Let me tell you first
6: about what I fear. Um, What I fear is that this will be the the moment when the baby boomer generation lost the American uh, century. That, above all, the spectacle of spectacular incompetence in the basics of national security, protecting the American people from a threat not just to their livelihoods but to their lives, that that will be uh, lost. Because the United States, the once can do nation, will have one of the worst records in dealing with a threat that faced everybody around uh, the world. That's what you heard when you heard Anthony Fauci this week talk about our case count potentially going from 40,000 to 100,000 cases a day. And by the way, since people think we're understating uh, the number of uh, cases by a factor of uh, 10, um, that 100,000 cases a day is potentially close to a million uh, actual and real uh, cases a day. That's a very, very uh, big uh, deal. It affects the American people's confidence in themselves and their ability to do anything else. It affects the economy. If people are fear fearful of being near other people, it doesn't matter about shutdown orders. You're not going to have a decent uh, economy. It affects the standing of the United States in uh, the world and emboldens our potential adversaries. It affects the credibility of our democratic market-oriented model. If we're not able to manage our own affairs in a competent way within our democratic uh, system, it is something uh, whose full consequences I think are very hard to predict but we know they will mean much less good lives for our children through their adulthood and ultimately uh, for our grandchildren. And that's on the table. I'm not predicting it, but that is on the table right now.
2: And Larry, if that's the downside case, what's the upside case? I think what I hope for is
6: that this will be a period of renewal. You know, if you look at the long arc of American uh, history, our great strength is is our ability to be resilient, for there to be prophecies of doom, and for those prophecies to prove to be self-denying because they mobilize energy that prompts renewal. That was the story around uh, the Civil War. That was the story around the fears that we would lose the Cold War. That was was what happened when people thought we had a malaise and declared a crisis of the national spirit in uh, the late 1970s. That's what prompted, it's, it's at least said, Winston Churchill to have remarked that the United States always does the right thing, but only after exhausting the alternatives. And I think it's possible, if you look, look at what's happening in the United States, if you look at what's happening in uh, other countries, that not overnight, but these events may lance, as Francis Fukuyama put it, the populist boil. And populism, May be shown for the rhetorical but not substantive approach to governing that it is. And electorates may learn that when it's their children's livelihoods, when it's their own health that's at stake, they need to put their faith uh, someplace else. And certainly in the United States, whether it is repairing the Potholes in the roads, whether it is improving uh, education, whether it is providing health care uh, for everyone so that they can feel secure, there is low hanging fruit. There are problems that are not intractable, very much the opposite, subject to uh, effective resolution. And if we can return to a culture of rational argument, of considered uh, leadership, I think that with all of our problems, with every problem the United States has, playing the hand of the United States is probably the best hand to play of major countries uh, in the world. So I am fearful, yes but I also see uh, great potential in this moment.
2: Larry, you said something I think critically important just there, uh, depending on rational judgment and considered leadership. In the past, when the United States has faced some historic crises, we've prided ourselves in the ability of bringing the best minds into the room, really dealing with the facts, not wishing ourselves to success, having a media that can screen through some of the subterfuge and really get to the truth. Do we have those tools available to us today The way we have in the past.
6: They're not working well right now. And we're going to have to think very hard. And some of it's a matter of law and regulation, but some of it is a matter of culture about what uh, might be called a Gresham's Law of uh, communication. Gresham's Law is the economic proposition that bad money drives out good because people hoard good money and they spend, try to get rid of uh, bad money. There's some tendency like that in the way we allocate our attention uh, to the most exciting uh, thing, to clickbait rather than to substance. And there's a lot of cultural, very large questions there. There's questions of regulation, who's a publisher and who's a a platform uh, that we're going to face. But ultimately, I think it's a great deal about providing the right kind of uh, vision uh, to people. And a great deal of this, I think, is the responsibility of our schools and our uh, universities. And I think that uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan said something very profound when he said, You're entitled to your own opinions you're not entitled to your own facts. And what I, as an educator, worry about is that in our rush to tolerance, we're stopping teaching that. And we're increasingly teaching you actually are entitled to your feelings. And since your feelings are paramount, whatever you, whatever your view of the facts is, Uh, is equally good. I think that's there in the crazy things that our president says about the biology of coronavirus, and that's there in some things that people on the left uh, say about the questions uh, they care about most. So ultimately, politics rests on a social foundation and that, I think, is, is enormously important, and ours is in need of some repair.
2: Thank you so much to Larry Summers. Always great to have him with us. He, of course, is the former Secretary of Treasury, now at Harvard, also is the director of the Economic Council at the White House under President Barack Obama. That's it for this edition of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. See you next week. This is Bloomberg.